Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Secret Library Podcast. The show was produced with support from listeners like you via Patreon. Even though we had opportunities from companies to sponsor the show, we decided it felt better to stick with listener support and building a community around writing. The show is self-funded, meaning we pay for hosting, distribution, the time it takes to schedule, record, edit, and share each episode ourselves, and we've done so since 2016. So if you love the show and the show means something to you, it would really mean the world if you can join the Patreon to support it continuing. Even a dollar a month makes an enormous difference. So you can visit and join at patreon.com slash secret library. This is episode 152 of the Secret Library podcast. My guest this week is Anna Petoniak, author of the novels Necessary People, which is out now, and The Futures. Anna graduated from Yale, where she majored in English and was an editor at the Yale Daily News. She worked for many years in book publishing, most recently as a senior editor at Random House. She grew up in Whistler, British Columbia, and now lives in New York City. It was a real treat to talk to Anna because she has been on both sides of the writing-publishing line, both as a novelist, now a two-time novelist, as well as an editor. So it was wonderful to hear from Anna about how she thinks about writing and how the writing process has been for her, knowing what it's like on the other side when a book arrives and how an editor thinks and what kinds of questions an editor is going to ask. I was fascinated by this because I wondered, would this be paralysis inducing to think, oh, I know how an editor is going to do this, or I know what an editor is going to think about this paragraph. But I found that Anna's process was actually much more inspiring than that. And I hope that you will feel the same way. I'm fairly certain you will. So I'm really delighted to share this conversation with Anna Petoniak. Hey, Anna, thank you so much for coming on. Hi, Caroline. Thank you for having me. So I'm excited to talk about necessary people for a number of reasons. But one of the things I wanted to start with was how much I enjoyed reading a book where 95% of the main characters were women, and they were really the ones driving the action in the book. And I wondered if that was a conscious choice or just something that happened because that was the way the idea you had worked. You know, I'm so happy that you picked up on that and responded to it in that way, because that was absolutely a conscious choice. And something I had very much in my mind from the beginning of working on this book Um, part of it was because it was almost like a reaction or a counterpoint to working, um, on my first book, the futures, which was really about a love story, um, between a man and a woman. And a lot of things happened in that book, but the kind of central relationship, uh, the, the center of gravity in the story in a way was between 
um, this young man and this young woman navigating New York each in their own way. And in the second book, I thought, I don't want to write about a couple at all. I want romance and, you know, romantic love to be essentially irrelevant to this story because that was, it was almost like I needed a palate cleanser or uh, <laughs> something else to, to focus my attention on. Um, so that was part of it. And then the other part of it was when the idea came to me, um, it arrived as, you know, the, the kind of dynamic that immediately popped into mind was this friendship between Stella and Violet that sort of turns into equal parts, friendship and rivalry. And I think that, you know, female friendship in particular can be so complicated and so, you know, so endlessly fascinating to explore. And I think that's why, you know, it's, it's having, well, it's probably always had its moment in literature, but especially, you know, in the, the age of Elena Ferrante that we live in, writers know that you can, you can explore so much about life and you can explore so many questions through the lens of female friendship. So that was the kind of beginning seed of the story. And then from there, I thought, you know, I'm really interested in the way that women interact in the workplace, the way that they model ambition, the way that their own ambitions can collide with one another. And I thought it would be much more interesting if they were, you know, navigating this world that was primarily dominated by women. And part of it also, um, to, to finish this thread is it was almost like a version of wish fulfillment or like a fantasy where I thought, you know, I want to write about a world where it's like all women in mm. control and they're not good women. Some of them are, you know, really venal or corrupt or flawed in some very, very deep ways. But I kind of just wanted the focus to be on the ladies. Um, so, so those were all the various factors running through my mind as I, um, as I stocked this book with women aplenty. Yes, you did. I, I think that was, it was very noteworthy to me that, that there are women who are sort of dating people and then thinking, oh, this is kind of boring. I'm not going to stick with this guy. That, that really the main motivation for them was their work when once mm -hmm. they discovered what it was they were really driven by. And the impression they had with each other, it was very interesting to me. There are a number of points where Violet is is interacting with men and it's kind of leaving her cold so to speak and and not in mm -hmm. that she's she's uninterested in them but just that it, it made me think about how there are trends in fashion where women seem to be trying to impress each other much more than they're totally. trying to impress men and totally I felt like this was happening a lot between Violet and Stella and that Violet who at the beginning, I mean, Violet comes from a more, I guess, a less supportive background is how I would put it. They're, mm -hmm. They don't really believe in her, her family, and she really has had to do everything on her own versus Stella is really well taken care of and, and from wealthy people. It, it was interesting to see how the ultimate person that Violet really wanted to impress was Stella. Mm -hmm. And yep. I wondered how you constructed these characters who came to you first and, and how did you, how did their relationship come alive in your mind? Yeah. So they came to me as a pair. 
Mm. I guess. Um, it wasn't like one arrived and then the other arrived. So I, I can tell you a little bit just about that, that first moment, which I still remember very vividly when I got the idea for this book. Um, it was several years ago now. It was actually just as I was finishing up work on my first book, The Futures. Um, and my mind was, you know, already starting to wander a little bit into, you know, what do I, what do I want to do next? What's the next idea going to be? And at that point in time, I was working as an editor at Random House, where I worked for many years. And I went to a book party for an author that Random House published, who was a TV personality. Um, and his boss at this TV network was throwing the book party for him. And it was in this kind of fancy back room of this bar. It was a pretty small and intimate party. Um, and it was mostly people from that world, from the TV world. And I went to the party along with a couple of random house colleagues and us book people kind of clustered in the corner because, you know, we didn't really know anyone else there. And I was pretty starstruck, to be honest, because there were these people there in the room, in the flesh, who I'd only ever seen on screen before. Um, I didn't really talk to them. I didn't work up the nerve for that. But it was really interesting just to observe them and to observe what was happening in the room, because even though there are these sort of outsized magnetic personalities. They're also just coworkers kind of shooting the shit at the end of the day. And to see that, um, that combination of someone who is really well known, who, you know, has this kind of public facing persona, but also, you know, is just working a job like anyone else and has good days and bad days and they gripe to their coworkers, um, like any normal person would, that dynamic sort of stuck in my mind. And, um, and as I was walking home from the party that night, I kept thinking about that world and what it's like to have an on-screen persona and an off-screen persona. Um, and what it would be like, especially to work in that world where you, you are not necessarily the one who is on camera, who's getting all the attention, who's that well known to the public. But by virtue of working behind the scenes, um, you know, as a producer, for instance, you see the whole person and you see the whole person in a way that the public never would. So that dynamic just kind of kept circling through my mind. And I thought about, you know, what if you had two women on either side of this equation, one who was on camera and one who was off camera? And what if they were friends in addition to being coworkers? And what if there was a rivalry there that, you know, took a kind of heated and dangerous turn? And that was when the two, you know, two seeds of Stella and Violet arrived. And they certainly weren't, you know, fully baked characters at that point. And there was a lot I didn't know about them. Um, but it was the idea of exploring a friendship that had to straddle this, uh, this rivalry as well. That, um, that was really where the idea began. So I never, you know, I don't think I could have ever written about a character like Violet without Stella being on the other side. And the same would be true vice versa. So they were always like a dyad in my mind. I think something that I found fascinating in the book was the fact that you didn't really shy away from the darker aspects of either character. 
Mm-hmm. So I wonder if, were those apparent at the beginning or how did you kind of get to know them and get them to be, as you said, like fully baked characters? What was your process mm-hmm. of getting to know them better? So I knew from the beginning that there would be a darkness in each of them because, you know, I'm not, I'm not very good at outlining a book um, before I start. I wish I was better at this because I think it would make me a much more efficient writer. But um, my process, for better or for worse, is I'll often start with an idea, um, a kind of very vague and loose idea of who these characters are and a sense of what the um, overall conflict is that I'm driving towards. You know, what what's the situation I want them to end up in? Um but at that point, you know, I don't necessarily know how they're going to get there along the way. And I don't really, at that beginning moment, know who these characters are very well. I kind of know them from the outside in the same way that, you know, you could glance at someone like Violet across the room and maybe you can infer certain things about her, like just the way she carries herself or her body language or the way she's dressed or this, you know, this sense of ambition that she kind of radiates. But, um, but you don't really know what's inside of her mind and what's making her tick. And the same is true for me as the writer when I'm beginning the story. So the process of getting to know these characters and really explore them and start to understand them in a very deep way comes in the writing of the first draft. Um, And the first draft, I I can start to see this pattern in myself because it was true on the first book and the second book, and I think it's going to be true on um, the third book I'm working on too, is that I tend to write a very messy um, and very bad first draft uh, that kind of serves as the outline in progress where I'm working out the beats of the story. um, But more to the point, I'm working out who these characters are and how do they think and how do they talk and, you know, how do they behave in any given situation? And then by the time I finished the first draft, um, it's, it's gotten me to a point where I feel much more secure in my knowledge of these characters and my sense of how I want the story to unfold. But the first draft is such a mess at that point. Um, and so kind of, so it's sort of like a jumble, um, because it's been evolving along the way, uh, such that I'd sort of just have to set the first draft aside entirely, Um, and start fresh with a second draft, like literally a blank word document. Um, so that was, that was how I did it on my first book and my second book. And again, probably not the most efficient, uh, efficient way to write a book, but it's the way that I have, um, stumbled upon for myself. I, I think you're not alone in this. I'm, If I may, I'm extremely curious about what you include in the very messy first draft and what you don't worry about. Because I think Mm -hmm. we, we often feel this kind of pressure, like, okay, now I'm writing the book, you know, and, and that, oh, I got to get that description of what she's wearing. Right. Or I'm thinking of all the things that I kind of set aside in, in -hmm. early drafts. And I'm wondering what you felt like you needed to understand at the end of the first draft and what you were like, okay, I'll deal with that later. Yeah. So when I was, when I'm writing the first draft, I do have to kind of commit to it in a sense. I don't think the process works if I, if I 
actually treat the first draft like an outline where, you know, I'm leaving entire swaths not filled in or not really baked because the, the funniest thing about writing is that your insight into a character or a situation can come from the most unexpected places. You might think like, okay, I'm really going to understand who Stella is or Violet is when I'm writing this pivotal scene that happens at the climax of the book. Like that's when I'm really going to have this revealed to me. But sometimes it's in the smallest moments where you're, you know, you're just describing like an ordinary lunch between them. And if you let yourself, you know, really stay in that scene and sometimes it's describing the food they're eating or the clothes they're, the clothes they're wearing or, um, you know, the way that they kind of feel as they move through that space. Sometimes it's those really small moments that will give you the key or one of the keys that you need to unlock, you know, who the person is or, or what the story is. So I tend to indulge myself in the first draft. <laughs> That's probably the best way to describe it. It's like, I'll write a scene and I know it's long and I know that it's not really moving the plot forward and that it's not, it's not jiving exactly, but, um, but I'm getting at something in that scene. And it's sort of just about, for me, like putting in the mileage and putting in the time, um, such that by the end of the first draft, like I've spent a lot of time with these characters. Um, and you know, I've, I've kind of written out all of these things, all of these various scenes that because it's the first draft and because it's a mess, don't really add up to a coherent story, but they've gotten me in a very stop and go manner um, to, to the place where I need to be, which is generally like the, the kind of climactic scene or the pivotal conflict or the big question that I'm trying to resolve. Um, so it's, it's kind of a gut feeling in terms of when I get to the end of the first draft, like, okay, it's time to, it's time to set this aside and start anew. Um, and that gut feeling is usually like, I finally get who this person is. Um, or I finally get what, you know, motivates them or what obsesses them, um, or what's really driving them forwards. So, there are, you know, kind of Frankenstein aspects to the first draft where <laughs> I might like have a character in the beginning and I'm like, oh yeah, this character is going to be totally pivotal. Like, uh, they're going to come into play in the last third and it's all going to add up. But then by the time I'm halfway through the draft, I'm like, well, that character doesn't make any sense. So I'm just going to drop it. And because it's the first draft, it's like, I don't worry about tying that thread off. I just keep going because I know that when I start, the second draft, which is really when the book starts to feel more like a book. Um, I figured out that like, I don't need that character or I don't need that plot line. And I'll just, I'll leave it out when I begin fresh. Yes. I think this is so helpful to know because I think that there's a lot of fear that can happen in writing a story at the beginning. It's like, oh, I need to have this outline because I need to know what's going to mm -hmm. happen. And until I know what this is about, I'm not allowed to write anything. Yeah, yeah, totally. But I think that um, the idea that you're going to know what the story is about or that you're going to know who a character is or you're going to know, you know, why they do what they do, that you're going to know that from the outset in this kind of godlike manner um, 
is a, that's a tall order. And it's not to say that you can't get there. I think that some writers who have been, um, writing for decades and decades, um, especially ones who like know their genre really well, or maybe they have a recurring character, like they can kind of begin a book with that knowledge or insight already in mind. But at least for me and for where I am right now in my writing career, um, I don't feel that I can stand there at the beginning of the process, not having actually written any of the book and claim that knowledge or insight. The only way to get there, I think, is through like time, um, through spending a lot of time with these characters and spending time inside the story. So it's not um, it's not a particularly like glamorous answer because there's no real shortcut to it. But um, I think giving yourself that both that time and that permission to just, you know, wade through the mud for a while um, can help you eventually uh, grasp the story in a very deep and effective way. Did you find you were less worried about doing that in your second book than you were in your first? Yes, for sure. Um, and I find that, you know, even more so as I'm, I'm starting to work on an idea for a third book, I feel even more, more comfortable with it because now that I know that this is my process, I'm like, it's okay. I know how this is going to go. I might feel really, um, you know, I might feel that the, the draft I'm working on is just useless and terrible and have a day where it's like, Oh, I'm just not getting anywhere with this, but I know that it's okay. Cause it's just the first draft. So part of it for me, and I think this is probably true with any writer who's, who's, um, in the beginning stage of their career and figuring out how they want to work as a writer and kind of operate is figuring out what process works best for you. Because, you know, it's different for every person. And some people can write an outline and that's exactly what they need. And then they can go and it's great. But, um, it's such a personal experience writing a book. You're, you're, um, you're having, as one of my colleagues at random house once put it, you're entering into a conversation with your deepest self. Um, and I think that's true no matter what kind of book you're writing, whether it's fiction, whether it's memoir, um, narrative, nonfiction, whatever it might be. And who's to say what the best way is to structure that conversation? Um, who's to say what the parameters of that conversation have to be? So the more you do it and the more you get comfortable with what works for you, um, the more empowering it will be because you'll know, okay, this is, this is what I need to be doing. Yeah, I agree. I'm wondering if one of the things that happens through writing this messy first draft is by getting to know the characters, by understanding who they are, I, I it seems, and it felt this way in, in this book in particular, that by getting to know who they are, you're then able to determine, okay, they would do this or no, they actually wouldn't do this at all. That you need that exactly. time with them to figure that out before you know the plot. Exactly. I think that that is one of the crucial parts of writing a story that feels true and feels authentic and believable. Um, and for me, writing Necessary People was, um, it was a fun challenge because I knew that I wanted to go to a kind of darker 
place than I had in my first book. And I wanted the, um, the story to go in a direction that maybe I hadn't gone before. But when I started actually writing the book, I realized that I need to be there with Violet as she's making these decisions and getting in increasingly deep. Um, and I have to believe her as she's, you know, taking each of these actions and making all of these decisions. Um, even though I wouldn't do exactly what she did in these scenarios, I have to understand the logic behind it. Um, I can't just say like, oh, she goes off and does this crazy thing because it's convenient for the plot for that to happen. I have to actually be able to rationalize why she would do what she would do. Um, and I can only know that I can only do that if I know what her sort of prior assumptions are. If I know what the foundation of her personality is that would allow her to, you know, justify making this kind of decision. So it's kind of like you're performing like this deep psychoanalysis on your characters. Mm -hmm. Um, and for me, that's, that's really fun. This is what I like about writing fiction is it's, it's a chance to go very deep inside another person's brain, even if that person is not real and made up, um, in a way that you really can't do in real life. Like even with your, with your spouse or your partner or your closest friend or family member, like you can't get inside their brain. You can become very close to them and you can understand them as best as you possibly can. But, um, but only in fiction do you get to sort of literally peer inside another person's mind. Um, and that, you know, that for me is a lot of fun, but it does require that sort of investment upfront. Um, in order to feel confident and secure in that knowledge so that you can then have them move through the world and make these decisions and take these actions in a way that feels really authentic. Definitely. I'm, I'm interested in since, since you're in a unique position, having been just like you talk about uh, Violet and Stella being on both sides of the dynamic in the television and in particular the television news world, you're in a unique position having been an editor at Random House mm -hmm. and then working as a writer yourself. And I'm wondering how your past career, your work that you experiences that you've had as an editor impacted your process when you were writing, if at all. Mm -hmm. it, it definitely impacted my process. I would say it really um, helped shape it from the very beginning, um, in a way that was incredibly useful because when I started working at random house as an editorial assistant, and this was soon after I'd graduated from college, I'd done a little bit of creative writing, um, some of it in school, but it was something that I always felt very intimidated by. Um, and I thought, I don't know how to write a novel. You know what, how would I ever do that? But working as an editor um, and working with these writers on their manuscripts was like the best writing education I could have asked for. Um, I never got my MFA. I never had that kind of formal instruction. And I think that can be really helpful for people. But working in publishing was sort of like my substitute for an MFA. It was mm. kind of like learning by doing um, because I started to understand that 
you know, a novel, which when you study it in school, like if, if you're taking an English literature course, you learn to kind of read a novel and analyze a novel as if it's a fixed thing. It's like, what does the writer mean by this word on page 10? And what does this comma placement tell us about the story? Um, it, it almost becomes like a sacred text. And that was part of the intimidation factor for me. It's like, well, these, these novels are like, you know, received wisdom (laughs) and I am not capable of doing that. Um, but when you get up close and personal in the process, you know, what you do when you work as an editor, um, at a publishing house, you start to see that these novels are not set in stone, um, that they take a lot of work, a lot of revision, and often they're, they're quite messy when they, um, when they come into you from the writer, um, because the writer needs help and the writer needs to rework it over and over and over again. So working in publishing kind of lowered the intimidation factor for me because I thought, okay, well, I'm not capable of writing a perfect novel on the first try. That's for sure. But I am probably capable of writing something really bad and then revising it and then seeing what happens and revising it again and so on and so forth. So that was a big gift um, that came from working as an editor. But more to the point, um, and I learned a lot of this by watching the editors around me, um, just by kind of learning to trust my gut and getting better at diagnosing, you know, what is working and what's not working in a given book, you start to understand the kind of, um, the mechanics of writing a novel, not to say that it's a mechanical or rote process because it is so, um, so changeable and so variable from person to person, but you learn to pay attention to things that you might not have as just an ordinary reader. So I, for instance, learn to pay a lot of attention to pacing and mm. to, you know, the need for a story to be constantly escalating in tension, um, for there to be new questions and new complications introduced at these kind of steady intervals, um, which will just keep hooking a reader's attention. Um, because you can't really start with one big question on page, page two or page three and expect that that one question will sustain a reader for like 300 pages. You need to keep, you know, making it more complicated, going deeper, um, adding these new twists and turns. Um, and that, you know, that's just one example. There are many things that you, that you just get a sort of better and better handle on, um, by working with these writers as they start to sharpen it. So, you know, what really great dialogue sounds like, um, or how a writer can, can make use of shifting perspectives or jumps in time. Um, it, all of these, all of these things that it's easy to be enchanted by as a reader and almost take for granted. But as an editor, you kind of put on your x-ray goggles and you start <laughs> to actually look at these things that exist right beneath the surface of the book. Um, and that's so helpful in, um, in revealing those aspects of the craft. Did you find it made it less magical for you in a way? Just, I, I had experience where I started to learn to become a film editor as an example at one point mm-hmm. when I was in my 20s. And I started going to the movies afterwards and I said, oh, there's an extra frame in that cut. 
Mm-hmm. I would have I would have cut that sooner. <laughs> or, or like, oh, they went on too long there. Oh, oh. And I said, I can't do this for a living because I need to be able to go to the movies and still have this experience of magic. But for some reason, books feel different. And I wonder yeah. if that was the case for you. So I would say that um, that sense of like the magic being interrupted was um, was probably most present when I was reading a book um, on my own time, let's say like reading a book on the weekend just for fun. And the book wasn't really working for me. It's like if the book wasn't, um, you know, wasn't connecting with me in some way, or I wasn't really falling in love with it, like I could, I could fixate on all the things I didn't like about it. I'm like, well, this plot is just so slow. Like there's no tension, nothing's happening. Or like this writer just goes on and on with these descriptions or like the dialogue's not very sharp. It's like when, when the book was failing to captivate me, I would notice all of those mistakes, but in general, if a book kind of swept me up into its story and I started to fall under the writer's spell, then I would stop noticing those things. Um, and no book is perfect. So even the books that swept me up, like there would, if I was really trying to pinpoint, um, you know, pinpoint certain things that I might've changed or I might've, you know, flagged for the writer, I'm sure I could have done that. But once I, you know, once I was sufficiently enchanted by the story, that editor part of my brain sort of turned itself off. Um, and thank God for that, because it would be a really, uh, a really sterile experience to go through life and read every book. Like it was, you know, part of your job. Oh, definitely. Um, and that was always something I was, I, I tried to be good about that when I was, um, you know, balancing the the work of being an editor full time and also writing on the side, I tried to be kind of selfish with my time when it came to reading for pleasure, um, because it was easy to to read all the time for work and have that rule your life. Um, but that can really kind of deplete your energy, and I think deplete your enthusiasm because if everything you read is a chore. Um, you start to forget why you wanted to do this work in the first place and why you fell in love with it in the first place. So often it would be like the time, um, right before bed. Like if I was going to save half an hour every night for reading, um, that's when I would let myself read something that I just wanted to read for fun that had nothing to do with work. Um, and that helped keep that reader spark alive Mm. such that like the editor spark didn't burn everything down. I think that's so important. And I think it's, it's easy to get caught in this sort of how did they do it mentality, because craft that isn't working is obviously much more visible craft that is working is often invisible or very difficult to pick apart. Exactly. Which is is, wonderful and terrible. Yeah, it is. I and I still have that experience where I'll be reading a book and I'm like, I don't understand how how this writer is doing this. It's like, they're a magician. It's like, they're not showing the seams. They're not showing, um, everything that goes into it. Uh, and sometimes those experiences, I'm like, I wish I could stand there like behind Donna Tart mm. as she's like writing her next novel and like, watch her do it because I want to like, I want to, I want to know how she's doing this. Cause it is just, you know, she's one of my favorites. And, I'm astonished by like by her level of storytelling. Um, 
so yeah, there is that, uh, that way in which an amazing writer can make it look effortless, even though, you know, it's not actually effortless. There's no way. Yeah. One of, I read something and I'm going to misquote it badly. So I apologize to Donna Tartt, but I remember someone asking her like, why don't you put out your books more quickly? Like, why do you take 10 years with your books? And she said something to the effect of, well, I tried it that way and I didn't like it. Like I like taking mm-hmm. 10 years with them. And yeah, I feel like in some cases to get as, as kind of flawless as she is, that's maybe what it takes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. I think that, you know, it takes this, this, I'm sure this incredible patience and dedication to it. Um, she's clearly, you know, after I read the goldfinch, I just thought these characters, I, I don't believe that Theo Decker is not a real person. Like he is <laughs> so real to me. You can't convince me that he's not real. Um, and I don't think you can really create that feeling of reality unless, you know, she, she lived with him for probably 10 years, maybe longer. Um, and that's where that sense of reality comes from. Um, and what a gift for, for a writer to give to the world. Um, but it takes like a stamina and a patience that is, you know, like awe inspiring to me. What did you find most difficult in writing this book and and how did you deal with that? Um, so for me, the most, there were a couple things that were difficult about this. Well, there were many things that were difficult, but two things stand out in particular. Um, one was the, the kind of almost mechanical way in which I knew that I had to get Violet into this pivotal scene that happens about two thirds of the way through the book, um, which I won't describe for fear of right. spoiling the story, <laughs> but it's, it's this dramatic kind of climactic scene and, um, getting to the place where I could kind of convince myself and convince the reader of why she would do this thing. Um, was hard because I thought, you know, this is, this is a tall order. Like how, how could she justify this? Um, and how can I, how can I, you know, in writing her character and her story, justify this to the reader? Um, and that took just a lot of revision and trying one thing and trying another and, um, starting to sort of play with the way in which the story led up to that moment, to make it feel really, um, real and convincing. So that was one part of it. And then the other part of it was that, you know, as Violet becomes this increasingly ambitious person, you know, she's, she's worked in the TV business for several years and she has this sense of herself that, you know, I really want this and I want to succeed and I want to succeed at any cost. Um, her kind of outlook and her voice starts to get darker and darker but I knew that I didn't want the book to be alienating. I didn't want her to be alienating to the reader and how dark she was. Um, and I wanted there to be a sense of kind of relief and, um, variation threaded in among that. And this was something, you know, that was a a challenge I hadn't exactly encountered in my first book because the futures was told in alternating perspectives between Mm the two main characters, Julia and Evan. So that was like a built in way in which I could vary the tempo, vary the point of view, um, just give the reader like 
this, you know, these exits from, you're not stuck in one person's voice or one person's point of view the whole time. Like you're, you're always changing it up. And in this book, you're only in Violet's point of view. So it's like, how do I make this, um, you know, make sure that there's enough oxygen and enough variation in a story that's told just from one person's point of view. Um, and I, I think that was, it's not like I ever came across a solution and I thought, aha, okay, well, this is the perfect way to solve that problem. (laughs) But it was like a question or a problem I had in my mind, both on a conscious and subconscious level. Um, and I tried to make sure that there was enough in the book that was bigger than Violet that went beyond her, you know, that she's part of this world that, um, it's not all about her. It's, it's a world that expands in many different directions. Um, and we're seeing this world through her eyes, but we're also looking at, you know, at bigger things. That was one way of getting the variation in there. So even though it's Violet's story, it's a story about, um, you know, the whole world of TV news and what it's like to climb that corporate ladder and, and play that sort of game of Thrones as it were. Um, or it's about class differences. It's about, you know, the world that Stella comes from versus the world that Violet comes from and how much the advantages of Stella's world, um, can redound to her, you know, throughout the years. So, so it was making or, or trying my hardest to make sure that even though this is Violet's story and we're hearing it in her voice, um, that she's getting at questions that are bigger than her and go beyond her. I thought that was an interesting thing that happened with Eliza and Rebecca was that there was this other friendship of two women a little bit ahead or actually quite, mm-hmm. quite far ahead in many ways yeah. of Violet and Stella. And that you got to see one direction this friendship could take. And then there was, it was sort of almost like an alternative future. Totally. Um, I'm, I'm so happy you pinpointed that because that was something that I had sort of consciously in mind as I was working on the story was that Eliza and Rebecca formed almost like a mirror in certain ways of Stella and Violet, because you've got the producer behind the scenes and you've got her best friend, who's the star on camera. But Eliza and Rebecca, I think are much, uh, healthier people, (laughs) (laughs) like mentally and emotionally. Um, and even if the same, even if certain undercurrents exist in their relationship of rivalry or flares of resentment here and there, um, Overall, you know, they've got this really solid foundation of love that keeps them intact and makes sure that it always works between them. Um, And that was like maybe a model that Violet could aspire towards, but not ultimately get to um, because they're, uh, they're different people. And Violet and Stella, you know, are, are both plagued by their own flaws, um, which means that they'll never, they'll never quite be where Eliza and Rebecca are. Yes. Well, it's been such a joy talking to you about not only necessary people, but what, what went into writing it. And I'm so grateful that we were able to 
speak about it further. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me, Caroline. And I, I really enjoyed it. This was really fun. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.